Well, good morning. Man, it is so good to be with you. We have our South Campus, our North Campus family is gathering as well, our online campus. We love having everyone. We, we exist for one reason. It's real simple. We exist to help each other take our next step with Jesus. You want to know why? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in one. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. God wants to take us to places of abundance, places of peace. It is just our goal to help each other make sure we stay in step with him who is the Prince of Peace. You know, many years ago, I mean, it was probably almost two, de two decades ago, I actually attended the National Prayer Breakfast with our then, at the invitation of our then congressional district leader, our 19th district congressman and such. Security, when we showed up at the D.C. Hilton, was as intense as I'd ever been part of before. But reality was, a few years later, I visited the nation of Syria, and then I went to Israel, and Israel knew I went to Syria. And, well, Israel's real, um, real, real intense on security once you have visited Syria. Just let me say that. Um, and so anyway, we went through security. My wife and I were shown um, where we were sit. We're sitting in assigned seats. We we beat the congressman and his wife there, but there was another couple that was sitting at the table. And the man stood up and he introduced himself and his wife and said he was the ambassador to Brazil. I introduced myself and my wife and I told him who I was and he attempted to hide being very underwhelmed at my title and what I did in life. Um, but anyway, our congressman and his wife showed up and I noticed that they introduced themselves, but they didn't tell them what they did. But then somewhere in the course of the breakfast conversation before the program began, it became apparent that our congressman was a member of the House of Representatives. Not only that, that he was on the committee, I can't remember if he was in charge or not, but on one of the committees for agriculture, which by the way is a big deal in Brazil. And I watched as a switch flipped in this guy and he went into ambassador mode, man. He was brilliant at what he did. Um, he knew that we were in an environment where you can only do so much business, man. But without hesitation, without shame, he began to try to establish a connection with someone that he felt like, hey, this guy could help me and my nation. It's interesting that this man lived in our nation, but he wasn't a citizen of our nation. He lived in our country, but he didn't see himself as of our country, if I may. He was in our land, but not of our land. That's what an ambassador does. Now, as he was doing his ambassador thing, I believe the Spirit of God brought a scripture to my mind. It's in the fifth chapter of Paul's second letter to Corinth, where he says, we, we is anyone who is a follower of Jesus. If you lay hold of the name of Jesus, this is for you. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal directly through us. Now, I want you to let that title I want you to let that roll. I want you to let that facet of our identity sink in. Ambassador. Ambassador is a word regarding government. If I may, it is a political term. According to Wikipedia, and you know if it's in Wikipedia, it's true, right? Wikipedia says ambassadors are ministers of the highest rank with plenty potentiary authority to represent their head of state. Now, I'm from a small West Texas town. We didn't use words like plenty potentiary. I have no idea how to, uh, what it means. I'm glad I learned how to say it. I just know it sounds important. And it probably is important because the role of ambassador is important. An ambassador is not a figurehead. 
They're not just someone who shows up to take a seat on occasion when the people of real authority can't be there. The word ambassador is normally reserved for a man or a woman who is an extension of the authority of their state. They're a person of authority. Now, connect the fact that that word is used of us. When Jesus had his trial, a supposed trial, the Roman governor Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? So make no mistake, the supposed trial and all the activity leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus was, at least from a human standpoint, it was political in nature. Jesus answered him and said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would do what the world does. My servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. So Jesus is saying, yes, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not what you normally think of. The kingdom I lead doesn't operate by the same rules, the same mechanisms as human kingdoms. So when we as a follower of Jesus, when we give our lives over to him, we become part of that kingdom, which means we give our primary allegiance to the kingdom of God that we confess isn't like human kingdoms. And more, we aren't just citizens of that kingdom. We are ambassadors. People who are in this world, but we are not of this world. That means that as a follower of Jesus, my allegiance is first to the kingdom of God before it is to any earthly kingdom of which I might be a citizen. But that really shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, we understand when Jesus uses the word hate here, he's not meaning literal as in detest or despise. This was an emphatic way of trying to say that if you're going to be my disciple, you must love me first, that you must love less. Anything else that is of importance to you, you must love them less than me. So that means I'm married my wife has a greater allegiance to Jesus than she does to me as her husband. Even though we are in a marital covenant with one another, my wife's allegiance is first and foremost to her king. I love my kids. I love my grandkids with a supernatural kind of strength. But my love for Jesus is greater. And if there's ever a wedge that is driven because of decisions that I make, that I move away from the king, I expect my kids to love Jesus more than me. And I will love Jesus more than I love my kids, even if a wedge is drawn between us. And I will tell you, as much as I love the United States of America, and I do, deeply, I love the king and his kingdom more. And my allegiance is first to the king and his kingdom. And that reality, listen to me, I think is foundational as we address the issue of politics. That we have to get this matter settled first and foremost in our hearts as we interact in a very polarized world. Please listen to me. I understand the topic we're diving into today uh, has the potential for a lot of division. I wish I had time to really unpack in uh, a lot of time the reality of this, but we really don't have that. We're not gonna do it. I can't answer every question. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to address what I think are three truths that we can find. And they really correspond to the greatest mistakes that I think we're making in the church today as it comes to politics. And what I'm going to ask you to do is not necessarily agree. 
Where it's biblical, you agree. Where it's David, man, you are welcome to disagree, but I do ask that you give me the grace to listen to me all the way through. Because if we're not really careful, what you can do is you can hear one thing that you think you heard what I say, you can misunderstand it, and quit listening at that point. It's easy to misinterpret. Have you heard that before? It's easy to misinterpret in our world today. Like, the first truth I want you to hear is that politics aren't of first importance. And if you're not really careful, you can hear me say that politics are of no importance. That's not what I said. Politics aren't of first importance. I'm simply saying, as followers of Jesus, we cannot say that government or politics are of first importance. At a point early on in his ministry, Jesus, from all the people that were following him, chose 12. 12 that would be his closest. If you've been around the church world, you've heard of the 12 apostles. Matthew, in the 10th chapter, lists for us the 12 apostles. And among some of them, he actually gives a descriptor. Not all of them. But two of the people he gives descriptors to, he actually gives political descriptors. Matthew himself is said to be Matthew the tax collector. You see, the biggest political issue facing Israel in the first century was what to do with the Roman occupation of Israel. Matthew had a position. Matthew joined them. He became an employee of the Roman Empire. He apparently believed that Jews could be in partnership with Rome, and it worked out. But another one of the 12 was a guy named Simon. Simon was a zealot. You know what a zealot was? Zealots were Jews who used guerrilla warfare, who used force to oppose the Roman occupation of Israel. If you were a Roman talking about Jewish zealots, you would have called them terrorists. Do you think it's at least possible that when they had that first dinner together, that there were some others among the 12 who kind of pulled each other aside, maybe James pulled Peter aside hey, and said, hey, don't you think it'd be wise for us to put Matthew on one end of the table and Simon on the other end of the table? You know, Simon knows how to kill people. That, that's what they've done. I would imagine he would love to get his hands on Matthew. Do you think that maybe if they begin to discuss some of the political things of their day, there might have been a disagreement? I promise you, any first century reader looking at that list in Matthew 10 would have begun to chuckle and said, there is no way a tax collector and a zealot can be on the same team. Yet they were. How? Right after he called the 12 to himself, he sent them out as ambassadors of his kingdom. And he gave them lots of instructions. And one of them was this. As you go, this is the message you preach. The kingdom of heaven is near. They were first ambassadors to the kingdom of heaven. Unity in seeking to bring the kingdom of heaven superseded the political differences with which they entered, at least at the beginning with which they entered their role as apostles. I want you to hear me. We have a country that is in great need right now. There are so many things that our country needs at that point. Our country has great need, and only the coming of God's kingdom into human hearts will resolve the issues of our nation. Are you hearing me? There is not a political answer to the ills of our nation. There is not a political leader in any role who can be the savior of this nation. There is only one savior of humankind. His name is Jesus. There's only one name under heaven and earth by which mankind might be saved, and it is Jesus. See, laws, politics are powerless to change the heart of humanity. 
Jesus, I'm sorry, John, in introducing Jesus to us, in John chapter one says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about this law, this form of government. Moses didn't go away by himself and write all these laws. He didn't gather the 70 elders of Israel as representatives of the people and they did their very best to write laws. Moses went to the mountain and God dictated to him the law of Israel. The law of Israel was divine and perfect. So if the law was perfect, why did Jesus need to come? Simple. Law can't change hearts. Government can't empower people to do what is right and good ultimately. Law cannot make us right with God. Law has a place in our society, but law, government, can coerce people by force to do the right thing as long as you have enough force to make sure it happens. But law in and of itself cannot shape the human heart. It is powerless to do so. In fact, if you read Paul's letters to the, church, the letter to the churches of Galatia, and this was a people who were trying to move back into using the law instead of following Jesus. He would say to them, no, 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 you don't understand. Yeah, the law was perfect and it had a role, but it, it can't change the human heart. The law was given to convince us that we need something else. We need grace and truth. The law was given by God to convince Israel they needed the Savior. That is why, for Jesus' followers, politics cannot be of first importance. We, listen to me, may I be so bold as to say, we alone carry the answer to the great needs of our society. We alone carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must hold to that as first. See, I have people telling me, Pastor, you know our nation is going to hell in a handbasket. And listen to me, I know what is meant by that, but I'm gonna get technical with you for a second. Our nation is not going to hell. Because nations will not be eternal. When Jesus returns and finishes his work, there will be one kingdom. And that is the only kingdom that will exist. The nations of the earth will not exist anywhere. But the people of our nation will exist somewhere. Every American has an eternal destiny. Every American is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We as the church must be concerned first for Americans and them having the best opportunity to meet Jesus, then America. Our first concern has to be people meeting Jesus. And I'm afraid what's happened way too often is we've gotten little things out of order. It's very common to take things ordained of God and make them of greater importance than God himself. And I'm afraid we at times have done that with politics. And the test that we can really look at is our emotions, especially in this day and age. If we find our primary emotion to be anger towards everyone. You know, that, that person on social media who posts like they post, that coworker who doesn't say things politically the way you see things, that family member that you don't want to go spend Christmas with because of, you know, all those issues and when we find ourselves having more anger than we do compassion about the, their eternal state, something is out of order for an ambassador of the kingdom. Guys, some of us are so angry because we're being discipled by Fox News or CNN and we're not being discipled by the word of God. 
who are spending hours and hours and hours listening to talk radio and listening to the news and reading our stuff. And that's if you're older. If you're younger, you're watching it on social media. You're watching it on TikTok, and we're being discipled by TikTok and Instagram. God help us. We need to be people of the book. We need to be in the word of God. And we need to be a people who stand first and foremost for the kingdom of God. When we spend more time, more energy, more prayers on the political condition than we do on the souls of people who are around us in our world and the souls of the people in our nation, then we have fallen prey to the temptation of the enemy of taking something ordained of God and making it larger than it's supposed to be. The Apostle Paul, talking to the church of Corinth, who had many issues they had to face, said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you as of first importance. Now, come on. We as followers of Jesus hold that everything written in the Bible is important. Amen? So if an important book says there's something of first importance, we ought to take note of that. What's of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the plan of God according to scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to those scriptures. Listen to me. Politics are not of first importance, but politics are important. And some of you right now going, dude, you are so double-minded. You're copping out on us here. You're scared. I'm really not. I'm really trying to be biblical. There exist many things in the Bible that are important, but not of first importance. I'll give you a good one right now. Ordained of God in the Garden of Eden before sin was marriage. There's not a one of us, no matter the state we are walking in right now, that would say that marriage is unimportant. But listen to me. It is not of first importance. Do you know that marriage is not even eternal? Do you know you're not going to be married in heaven? Well, you are going to be married, but you ain't going to be married to who you're married to now. You're saying, are they going to die and be married? You're not going to be married to any human. The Bible says that we collectively are the bride of Christ. And when we get to heaven, the groom has one bride and the bride has one groom. And I know that weird some of you out because we connect marriage with sexuality and that's because of the idolatry of sexuality in heaven. We don't need to do that. Some of you are saying, well, if we're not married in heaven, then we're not going to. That's right. You're not going to do that in heaven either. There's going to be something far better than that. Something far greater. That doesn't make sexuality unimportant. It doesn't make marriage unimportant in any form or fashion. It is just not of first importance. I'm going to challenge that politics, government, somewhat like marriage. You go home and read the 13th chapter of Romans, and you cannot help but see that government is ordained of God. Government is intended to be a gift to bless as many people as possible. We have this unique opportunity as Americans, really uncommon in world history, but it's been more common in the last couple of hundred years that we actually get a voice in our government. We cannot totally give up on that voice either. You see, because some in the church have made politics of first importance, I'm afraid some of us have just abandoned politics altogether because we have this propensity towards extremes. We make it first importance and you go, no, 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 no. And so we go to the other extreme. In fact, if you look at church history, there are whole church movements that encouraged people not to engage in politics in any level. You want to know one group that did that early on? The Baptist. The heritage of which we walk, if you go back to the 1800s, they encouraged you not only not to run for politics, but you couldn't even vote in elections because we wanted to make sure we are part of the kingdom. We overreacted to those kind of things. I think this is a massive mistake. Are you listening to me? We've been given a voice. We're supposed to be salt and light. And so I think we can vote. 
I think we should vote for righteousness. And I think there are men and women who are actually called of God to enter into the fray that is current politics at the local level, at the state level, and at the national level. And we need to stand behind them and pray for God-given anointing and wisdom to do the roles that they need to do. In fact, just a side note, we're going to drop a podcast on Tuesday, our Beyond Sunday podcast. Normally, that's stories of our church members, but I invited a friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Mansfield, does ministry in Washington, D.C. right now. He's actually going to talk to uh, our leaders about some of these issues. And one of the things he talks about are men and women that are believers, who entered in, but they did not know the stress. They didn't know the strain they were going to be under. This, there's so much he says in, it's a longer podcast than we normally do, but it's going to be worth your time and attention. I am just telling you, we need to be a men and women who are engaged. Because the scripture says, by the blessing of the upright, a city, a nation, a people is exalted, made right. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Listen to me, we have a voice. And we can use that voice to bless our city. One author said it so well. He said, we can make an argument that the greatest social benefits the Christian worldviews have bestowed on the world are its teaching on the respect for individual liberty. Anybody here in our nation in there? The freedom of conscience. You hear our founding documents. The dignity and equality of all people. The importance of the rule of law and the insistence that all people should be equal before it. The inherently corrupting power of authority. The need for checks and balances. These things were largely unheard of before Christians and Jews introduced them. And they introduced them primarily in the place of government. Listen to me. All laws are going to be based on some philosophy. They're going to be based on some ideology, even some theology, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God who have been given a voice, a blessed voice in a society, we can contend for righteous laws. Righteous laws that bless as many people as possible, both believers and non-believers. We're not going to try to make people Christian through legal means because you can't do it. But we can pass righteous laws. Let me give you an example. How many, how many of you are glad that like, we have a law that murder is wrong in our nation? Hands up right now. Some of you are not raising your hand. That scares me a lot. You say, well, of course we have a law like that. There have been societies and histories that actually condone murder. So don't say it's automatic. But that is a law that blesses all, both believers and non-believers. And that's considered probably a good universal thought for most people, same as stealing and the right to property. But there are other things that maybe we stand for as righteous people that we think bless all people. Some people disagree with. Like I'm going to say standing legally for the unborn is an act of justice and righteousness, that we believe that all people have the right to life the right to liberty, the right to pursuit of happiness in life. We stand for that even though some people disagree. Standing legally for our children to be protected in the midst of the radical uh, identity politics that we have going on right now is righteous. I mean, come on. It's absurd to think that a nine-year-old has the maturity to make life-altering decisions for certain hormones to block the natural God-given processes of puberty, to go into surgery and to utterly alter their body and to think that a nine-year-old has the ability to do that, that we would say such a thing. We are supposed to protect our kids. It's a righteous thing to think. Think about where this is going. If we can say that a nine-year-old without parental consent can alter their body, they have the maturity to make that decision. How can we say that they don't have the maturity to decide to have sexual relations with someone? 
even an adult. And you're going to say, no, 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 that, 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 that's illegal, that's, that's, that's unrighteous. People would never do that. Then you don't know your history. The Greek and Roman world, many philosophers, including names you know like Aristotle, felt like that pedophilia was the purest form of love in existence. An older man and a prepubescent boy. There is coming in our nation the move to legalize pedophilia. Just listen to me. It's going to happen. It is coming if we are concerned for justice and righteousness that will bless as many people as possible. I want to bless every kid. I want to help every child, believers or non-believers. don't care who their parents are. And sometimes we have to stand against a certain group of people as we stand for righteousness. And we do this while knowing the entire time the law isn't going to accomplish what we ultimately need to see, that we need the kingdom of God to do a move in our land. I get asked all the time, Pastor, do you want our nation to be a Christian nation? I don't know if we have any kids in here or not, but I'm going to use a word your mom and dad say you can't use, okay? So if you ask me, do I want our nation to be a Christian nation, I'm going to look at you and say that is the stupidest question I have ever heard in my life. Of course I do. I ache for our city to be a Christian city. But listen to me. There is no move of government that can make us a Christian nation. There is no move of government that can make our city a Christian city. You know what I want? I want so many people to find hope and life in Jesus Christ. I want them to know of his kindness that leads us to repentance. I want them to know of his heart and where he wants to lead them into places of abundance. I want them to have peace and joy that come from giving their lives over to Jesus. And I want it to happen over and over and over again by the tens of thousands in the big country. So we look up and say, it's all Christian. We are de facto a Christian city because everybody has given their life to Jesus Christ. I want that kind of move of God in our land. I contend for that to happen. We need to see an awakening, a revival in our nation. And I'm going to tell you this, we see that happen, it will affect your laws in a representative government because you will have primarily a righteous people who want to stand in righteousness but hopefully anointed of God to walk in wisdom so that we don't try to force that upon anybody because that's who our founding fathers were. Do you know that's the reason we have such a Christian influence in the beginning of our nation? You read our documents, our our forefathers did not make us a Christian nation in that you were not forced to be a Christian to be a citizen of our nation. You were not forced to be a Christian to hold political office, especially in the federal government and stuff like that. But one great historian, um, Leonold von Rantke, I think is his name, estimates that 90% of the people who lived in the colonial period were Christians. They identified as Christians. So it makes sense that if you have 90% of your nation identifying as a Christian and holding to that faith at some level, that our early laws and our early documents reflected righteousness. It reflected biblical truth, which, by the way, included freedom of religion and freedom of faith. Our founding fathers wanted to make sure no one was forced into a matter of faith. In being Christ ambassadors, or you listen to me, we contend for revival. We contend for an awakening of, uh, of people. We want people in mass to turn for Jesus, and we do that first. We hold to him first, while saying we see the importance of government. 
And we want government to bless as many people as possible. And so we will stand for righteousness in our government. Third truth. Christians are not always going to agree on politics. Christians will not always agree on politics. You might as well get used to it. And I'm going to tell you why that is going to be reality. We cannot let politics divide when we have unity in Jesus Christ. Amen? We can be unified on the centrality of Jesus and his kingdom and disagree over specifics of politics like Matthew and Simon. I, I don't know if they either one ever changed their positions. The Bible never tells us. I suspect they both did, but we don't know that they ever came into agreement. But I'm gonna tell you right now, when we allow politics to divide us, when we have Jesus together, we've put politics in a strong place. See, there are many elements of politics, certain philosophies and strategies that aren't about biblical truth. This is where we struggle. Many facets of modern politics, the philosophies and strategies are not about biblical truth. Like, I'm just gonna tell you, can I just give you a caveat right now? Don't send me an email about this one. Don't send me a TikTok video. I don't watch TikTok. I don't want the Chinese to have my information. Um, I get the struggle of this. The Bible doesn't talk about whether we should have a small federal government or a big federal government. See, it just got real personal, didn't it? But pastor, I believe. I didn't say you couldn't believe. Listen to me. I didn't say I don't have an opinion on it. I have some massive opinions on matters of politics. They are awesome. And some of you are saying, Pastor, will you tell us what they are? No. Not without you taking me for a great steak dinner, and I will do it one-on-one. -on -one. Because most of my philosophies about politics have to do with my thoughts about the origins of our nations and not biblical truth. It's my belief about the Constitution. You say, what do you believe? Are you an originalist? Do you believe it's a living document? Steak dinner. That's what I'm telling you. I have, I have real strong thoughts about that. I have real strong thoughts about big government versus small government, what's most effective. But I also have spent my whole life studying the Bible, and I know what's in there and what's not. And I'm not going to say that things are in the Bible that are not in the Bible, and nor am I going to disagree, nor, nor am I going to vilify a fellow follower of Jesus who has a disagreement on something that doesn't found itself in scriptural truth. Just not willing to do it. I'll give you a local example. I'll make it really personal, really fast, just in case it's not all awkward enough for you, okay? Last November, the citizens of, our, of Abilene voted to enact an ordinance that made Abilene a sanctuary city for the unborn. Prior to that, there was a lot of disagreement among followers of Jesus. And people at times wanted to say it's a pro-life issue or not a pro-life issue. It was not a pro-life issue for 90% of the discussions. It was a strategic disagreement. There were pro-life believers, people I love, honor, and respect, who believed this ordinance was a wise law, a wise thing to protect the life of the unborn. And there were other people who loved Jesus just as much, who were just as pro-life, who just said, hey, man, as pro-life as I am, I just don't think this is a wise law. I don't think this is a wise ordinance. And here are the reasons I don't think it's wise. And here are the reasons people say they're wise. And there was just a disagreement, not over the big issue of life or no life, but over the strategy of a specific ordinance. Many things, not all things, but many things in our current cultural climate come down to strategies and philosophies in which Christians may disagree. Listen to me. 
if you have all your political views based on headlines of Fox News or CNN or USA Today or Daily Wire, or if you're under 30, TikTok, Instagram, whatever it may be, and you're not willing to dive a little bit deeper into the nuances of it, you better just be very careful with your voice. We don't know as much as we think. There are things that are a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more technical and require a wisdom from heaven that people need to start carrying. And we're not gonna do that with just surface level thought. We as a church gotta learn to think a little deeper and be okay with that and such. And realize that there are gonna be people who love Jesus, who think deeply, deeply, and they're gonna probably disagree on some strategies and philosophies. Knowing this, we need to model the heart of our kingdom by loving those with whom we disagree, by communicating not out of anger or extremism. But we operate out of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we have respect and honor especially with brothers and sisters in Christ. The current spirit of this age, would you listen to me on this? The current spirit of this age is to vilify those with whom we disagree. That is not the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we love our enemies. So I just want you to think right now, politically, who's your greatest enemy? It's like, dude, you are just going after today. I am. Who's your greatest enemy? It could be that family member you never want to spend Christmas with again. It may be a political person. Who's your greatest enemy? Do you know you can radically disagree with them, but you better love them in the kingdom? Or you've missed what's supposed to be of first importance. In the kingdom of God, we outdo others in showing our honor. When somebody curses us, what do we do? We bless them. Because we are ambassadors of another kingdom. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. And we can do this because I'm just going to be very honest. We need to be humble enough to admit that there's a lot of political thoughts that we have that we may not be right about. Especially when it comes to certain strategies and philosophies. Sometimes we think we know something and we learn more about the complexities and the nuances of it. We, eh, I don't know as much. How many of you guys have ever heard of, let's say, Billy Graham? Anybody heard of Billy Graham? Yeah, you know, people that are for murder and never heard of Billy Graham. I'm telling you what, there's just some non-hand raisers in the room. <laughs> Billy Graham is considered one of the most influential Christians of his generation. Do you know that Billy Graham in the early 70s came out publicly and endorsed Vietnam, the Vietnam War, and endorsed the trustworthiness of President Richard Nixon? And then the thing called Watergate happened, which ironically to me is Watergate is like baby in comparison to what's happening today in the character of some of our political leaders. But anyway, Billy Graham had to come out and apologize for being very, very wrong. Southern Baptist pastor W.A. Criswell, amazing pastor, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, opposed the civil rights movement when it began, said it was Marxist in origin. He later went on record as to saying, I have never been so wrong about anything in my life. My thought, if Billy Graham could be wrong about some political things, I'm just saying I got some possibility in my life, right? I'm not trying to denigrate Criswell or Billy Graham. They were incredible men of God. 
great ambassadors of the kingdom. I am just saying, if they could be wrong, we better be humble enough to know that we ourselves can be wrong. And that knowledge means that the way I disagree, I can do so with honor. I can do so with respect. I can do so with words of blessing. Hear me. We've been making this journey the past five weeks. Now, I'm going to challenge that the stuff we're going to deal with in the days to come, which may not come straight out of the news like this series, is just as important as what we've been dealing with because we've got to learn to be a people not of this world while we're in this world. So you should expect that many of the things we're going to talk about here are not going to be the things you read about in the news. It's not our kingdom. You know what we talk about here? The kingdom of God. Jesus lived in a world like ours and he walked full of grace and truth. He didn't compromise truth where God revealed it, but he had grace for all people. And I'm gonna challenge that the way we disagree with people is necessary to walk in this grace because people with whom we disagree, no matter who they are, even that greatest of enemy, Jesus said, I value them enough to die for them. If Jesus will die for them, then we need to be ones who walk with them, love them and respect them even when we disagree. If we wanna be like Jesus, full of grace and truth, listen to me. You better radically draw near to Jesus in this day and age. It can't be like a half-hearted thing. It can be an occasional church service. We need it moment by moment, day by day. And we need a grace to stay in step with him. And I believe as we stay in step with him, there will be a heavenly wisdom to navigate whatever it is we're called to navigate. So let's do this. Let's bow our heads if you don't mind. I'm running a little over my allotted time, but I just ask for a little bit more. I'm gonna dare you to ask for some things. I'm gonna dare you to ask for grace and truth. I've told you that every week. Let's pray for an anointing, a power of the Spirit to walk in grace and truth. To say, Lord, I, I want it. Maybe you need to confess you've made politics too important. There's an anger that's overriding our lives, a frustration. I'm not hopeless about our nation. I think there is a people who are going to contend for the coming of the kingdom of God. If you've done that, I'm not asking you to swing the pendulum. I'm asking us to repent. Put politics in its right spot. Government, law in its right spot. Maybe you've done the opposite and you've just abandoned it altogether. I think for some of us, it hit me. Some of us, we go to the polls and we just are overwhelmed by how much is on the ballot. And it's like, I don't have time to keep up with everything that's on the ballot. I had that happen to me and I felt like I received something. I don't know if it's of the Lord or not. It was for me. I just made a decision. I don't have to vote on everything. I just kind of made a decision. If I don't know enough about it to put my voice to it, I just leave that box unchecked. It, it freed me up. It's like, I don't, I don't have to vote on everything. But there are some things I want to give my voice to, things that I've learned, things I've dove into, and where I've taken the time to learn about some of these things. I'm going to voice the things that I feel like God has given me to voice. I don't vote straight party for anything. I may lean towards one party. 
but I don't vote straight party because I just don't think everybody's got right because I don't think there's any party of God except the church, people who are part of the kingdom of God. Maybe you've abandoned politics and you know it's time to get your voice again. Would you pray for unity among believers? My heart aches over the disunity we've allowed come into the church over politics. Next week, we're going to celebrate some of the things God's doing among us. And we're going to talk about unity and the importance of unity and walking in it. It's that important to deal with. Would you pray for unity? I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer, a prayer for our nation. I don't even have to tell you what the prayer is. You know what it is. But it is our prayer. If I were to say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next line together? May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You want to pray for our nation? That's a great prayer. May your kingdom come, oh God, in our nation as it is in heaven. May your will be done in our nation as it is in heaven. Could we make that our prayer? Father, that's what we ask. We love our nation. We know you love our nation. You love the people of our nation. And we love our nation enough to say, God, we don't have everything right. Forgive us where we've turned away from you. And we ask for a move of you among the land. May your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.